This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, testing, tracing, they are at the core of everything that happens going forward. We hear about it from the president. We hear about it from experts on the coronavirus task force, from governors, from mayors, etc. Let's talk to someone who is working on this on the front lines on a national level. Anita Cicero is deputy director of Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. It's part of the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. As you might tell by the name, the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Mike Bloomberg. He's the founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies, parent company of this radio station. Anita, so good to talk to you. Good to be here, Jason. So what you're doing, as I said, is just really at the crux of all of this. This is going to determine what happens next. Where are we when it comes to really rolling out a plan to find cases and to trace folks? Well, we we do need a national plan for that. And so far, um, there has not been one. Um, CDC has provided some useful guidance and um, talked about the role of contact tracing in fighting the, the pandemic. But we developed our own report on testing and contact tracing because we really feel that that is the thing that's going to make the difference um, in this outbreak. And uh, for contact tracing, it just involves finding out who an infected person came in contact with so that those individuals can be alerted and um, and also quarantined in order to monitor their health and to make sure that they don't continue spreading the virus um, in public. Um, so th- this is critically important at this juncture, especially if we're going to be lifting social distancing. I got to say, Anita, every morning I wake up, I throw on Google and I say, you know, give me the top news headlines. And I hear about what's going on around the country in terms of starting these efforts um, to get control of the virus. Tell me how um, a testing and tracing system will work. What's the money needed to implement it? What are the people needed to implement it? And what does someone like me at home or Jason at home, what do we need to know about it? And what will we ultimately need to do to make this work? Uh, All very good questions. So, um, uh, contact tracing is something that's a, it's really a traditional, old, tried-and-true uh, method of being able to trace uh, the spread of infection and to control the infection so that it's not spread further. And public health agencies across the U.S. have been doing this for years. They do it um, to track measles cases, tuberculosis. Um, sexually transmitted infections. So this is something that our state and local public health agencies know how to do. Um, Now, that being said, they are understaffed and underfunded. I think public health budgets um, in the past 15 years have been cut by 30%. Um, Most public health agencies in the United States before COVID did not have Um, staff that were dedicated full-time to contact tracing. This is one of the many, many things that public health does um, in the course of their their jobs. And so what what is really needed is to have funding that will go to the state, the state um, 
public health departments and local public health departments so that they can do a couple things. Um, one is really to hire a significant number of, of workers um, or use volunteers and train them so that they can assist with contact tracing methods and also um, to, to maybe make use of some new technologies that may be coming online soon that can assist with contact tracing. Um, and in terms of, of what is is um, what's important to know about this is that, you know, we are all very, you know, desperate to get back to life as maybe not completely normal, but more normal than we're living through right now with these strict social distancing um, requirements. And the key to being able to circulate again in public is for the United States to know where all of its COVID cases are. Um, so to, to use the testing to in, order, in order to identify all those cases and then also be able to contact people who could have been exposed to a confirmed case to make sure that they quarantine for 14 days and stay out of circulation. Um, once we're able to do that then and we, we know more or less where the cases are, then others who are not infected and who weren't exposed um, will be more able to go to work and and um, and go to more you know shops and and you know again it will be a while before things are completely back to normal but at least that it would allow uh, social distancing measures to be relaxed so it is really important um, in order to, to try to get this right. So, Anita, and, and we're going to continue our conversation in just a few minutes, but in in about a minute, tell us. I mean. Collaboration and coordination seems really important. How confident are you that we can do this between the federal and, and state and local levels? Well, again, we need funding. I really have a lot of confidence in um, state and local public health officials to be able to, if given the resources, to mm. be able to manage um, these programs. And um, we can talk more about it, but the training that's required, it's not that extent, extensive or that complicated. So this is something that can be done. It, it's not a moonshot. It's just the funding is, needs to be there to hire the workforce. Still with us is Anita Cicero, Deputy Director of Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health, joining us from Washington, D.C. Anita, one thing I did want to get from you, because you folks at Johns Hopkins have just been incredible in terms of keeping track of the virus and really giving a good indication and perspective on where we are, where we're going, where we need to be going based on, you know, the actions of everybody around the country. You also, you're a lawyer. You've worked in Washington. You understand pharmaceuticals, the regulatory framework, um, the policy framework. Uh, What do you think is realistic in terms of us actually getting a vaccine that can tackle this virus? Well, I, that's the, you know, million dollar question right there. Um, and the good news is that I think governments um, and international organizations and industry are all focused on that goal um, and working very hard, um, contributing a lot of funding for that. Um, I think that in in our country, um, FDA has shown some flexibility in terms of regulatory issues surrounding um, development of of vaccine. 
Um, but the, you know, the fact is that it, it's really critical to have randomized controlled trials to prove um, the efficacy and, and also, you know, safety of vaccines that come online. And to do that well, um, it does take some time. So I think it's going to require some patience. I, I'm optimistic that we will get there ultimately, but it's, um, it's unlikely to be right around the corner. But this year or next year? I would not um, place my bets that it will happen this year. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, one can hope. Yeah. Right, right. Well, and, and certainly, uh, you know, some of the treatment on the treatment side and the therapeutic side, obviously, some not great news uh, today uh, from Gilead. You know, meanwhile, closer to home here in New York, you know, we got some data that was, it feels like, it, at least is being interpreted as somewhat positive in the sense of the spread and the number of people who have developed antibodies here. Uh, Anita, what does that tell us and how does that figure into this tracing project that you're working on nationally when you see figures like that coming out of New York and New York City, especially where, you know, upwards of 20% of people, you know, have been exposed or actually have had the virus and, and now have the antibodies. Help us understand how this all fits together. Well, the um, testing and contact tracing, in addition to um, antibody testing, which is called serology testing, mm-hmm. are all part of a you know disease surveillance system, and they would all have a role to play. Um, I think there's a lot of hope that eventually there'll be enough cases in you know a particular population to say oh now we have herd immunity meaning enough people have been exposed that um, they're less likely to continue to you know be infected Um, but even though there are some um, encouraging signs from different places based on serology testing um, we there's no community that is close to herd immunity Mm -hmm. Um, I think that in terms of the antibody test too um, because there were some relaxed regulatory requirements um, and to try to get tests out as soon as possible, um, there's um, it's sort of a mixed bag now. So some have shown to have some you know sensitivity um, issues and 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 problems and um, and so I think that FDA is sort of reining that back in a bit and making sure that serology testing that is available is, you know, known to be reliable right. um, to determine the antibodies. And and then uh, more work needs to be done really to confirm that the presence of antibodies um, confers immunity for people and how long that immunity lasts. Hey, one thing we wanted to ask you, just got 30 seconds here, the hardest hit area in New York, they're finding that over 21% of the people tested positive for a blood marker that they had been infected at some point with the virus. Uh, just again, about 25 seconds. What What's important about that that we need to know, just quickly? Well, it could be that those, those people, therefore, uh, have the antibodies and would not be um, reinfected with COVID anytime, you know, for months at least. Um, but also, potentially, they could participate and donate um, plasma mm-hmm. for um, other patients um, who, who need it in order to, to help um, build their antibodies right. up to protect against the disease. All right. 
All right. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great contacts. Anita Cicero, Deputy Director of Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Obviously, uh, the Bloomberg School of Public Health supported by Mike Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. And, you know, Carol, when we map out our show, there are some moments that I look forward to (laughs) just as a way to sit back, sort of rest into the show and just talk to a really smart person. And I know this who that is. is that moment. Jono Sarah. Love yeah. Jono Sarah. One of my favorite <laughs> folks. Been reading his stuff for years and now listening to the dulcet sound of his voice. Joe, on we're his... buttering you up because we really need I, it. I'm telling you. <laughs> I, I, we I really feel need like it. You guys just want to. You guys just want to take a rest and let me talk for the next 10 minutes, huh? <laughs> no, well, we really mean we, it. We would do that. Um, I was going to I was gonna uh, pump up your podcast a little bit, The Shrink Next Door. It's perfect quarantine uh, listening if, you, if you're if you like one of the three people in America who hasn't already listened to it. But um, we find you in Southampton, uh, safe and sound, I hope. And also, yeah. you Wait, know, what's it like out there? Can we ask you what's it like yeah. out there? Well, let me just put it this way. Lawn maintenance is an essential essential activity. Uh, I mean, you're, you're you know, working in the yard a lot. No, no. What I'm saying is, people are people are the the workers uh, in the lawn business are are just going crazy out here. Oh. It's, it's like it's it's kind of unbelievable, really. Um, I mean, in most other ways, we're like everybody else. Everybody's wearing a mask. You can't go into certain stores. There's a ton of takeout because um, you know there's so many New Yorkers out here. They're so used to takeout. That that all the restaurants are actually doing a pretty good business um, uh, with takeout pizza, takeout pasta, takeout steaks, takeout everything. Um, but you know, it's 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 quiet. It's it's definitely quiet. All right. So, what are the reasons we wanted to talk to you today? Just and again, we we love talking to you anytime. But I mean, you've had some some pretty provocative, as you tend to, uh, columns. Sort of taking stock of where we are at this moment, especially when it comes to the rescue that is underway from the corporate side. You've written a number of books about this. You understand the financial system really well and and the corporate world. What do you make of it so far? Because you've been a a critic, I think it's fair to say, of how this is going. Well, I mean, the first thing is the right way to do this honestly, is to put money in the hands of the people rather than trying to run it through a bank uh, and a business. It, it, that's a crazy way to do it. And, you know, they're always in this, they're in this situation now where they're just going to keep shoveling money to banks. We're going to keep shoveling to businesses. And it's in a first, cur- it, it, it first come first serve. So, you know, people are saying, well, the big companies got it first and that's so unfair. The big companies are, are organized. They know how to do this. They know how to get in the door. The little guy, the p- corner pizza joint, he needs help. And um, they're not going to get that help from the federal government. So, you know, I just think that proceeding the way we are is the wrong way to proceed. Let me just say one other quick thing. I'm so tired of being jealous of Germany, but they've done this so right. They've given every citizen a, a stipend for four or five months. And that's the way they're they're keeping their economy and their their country going. That's so, do you thing. think there's any appetite to do that here, or is is the horse out of the barn? No, the horse is out of the barn, and it, it's just something that um, America is, 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 you know, ideologically, America has a hard time with that. 
Yeah. At least on the right, especially on the right. And um, I, I just don't think we're going to go that way, even though it's obviously the, the, the most sensible way to do this. Yeah, but how do we break the system, Joe? I mean, it's the big companies that listen or that, you know, that lawmakers listen to. I mean, they're the ones right. that have, you know, the path, direct path to Washington. Well, you know, I, I don't blame this on the big companies. I mean, the, the big companies, first of all, the IBMs, the Xeroxes, the HPs, the, they're, they're going to be fine. They're going to survive. They've got money in the bank. They're, they're all trying to keep their employees uh, on the payroll as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's the, it's the, the issue really is the small, the small businesses, the corner stores. You know, I'm, I'm terrified that when we come out of this, you know, 50% of the small businesses in America are going to be gone. Yeah. And that's, that's the tragedy to be worried about. So, Joe, shifting gears a, a little bit, maybe dramatically, I, I want to talk a little bit about sports because it's something you've written a lot about, uh, and specifically the NCAA. What does the notion of, or and, and it feels more and more likely that we will not have certainly the the measure of college sports and college football and everything else that we're used to uh, come this fall. What are the implications of that for the business of sports and for the business of the NCAA and this model that you and others have essentially said is, speaking of fundamentally broken, fundamentally broken? Right. Um, I don't think there's going to be college football this year. Um, The... Athletic directors, you know, they got on the phone with Pence a couple of weeks ago. He wanted to talk to them. And they basically said, look, if we don't have students on campus, we're not going to have football, period, right. end of story, no matter how much you want, may want it. The, the financial implications of that are huge. Football yeah. is by far the, uh, you know, it's a 2 or $3 billion enterprise. And then basketball is a billion-dollar enterprise for the NCAA. That's where they get most of their money. And if you can't televise college football, um, it's going to be devastating to the to the world of college football. And uh, I I think it's just I think it could wind up meaning that there's a ratcheting huge ratcheting back of what football is, what it means, what it will do for the society. I, I, I think it'll be much much harder for coaches to to um, justify $11 million a year in salary, and it's going to also mean, and this is the most tragic part, nobody's going to drop their football team, but they're already starting to drop, you know, some some tennis teams, lacrosse teams. Right. Um, universities have petitioned the NCAA to be able to go below 14 sports, which is the NCAA minimum. And I think you're going to come out of this with a lot of, a lot of schools having five or six sports only, which will be pretty devastating, you know, because the real student-athletes, the ones who play lacrosse, the ones who are never going to be pro in anything, they're the ones who are going to get shafted. Can I use right. that word on the radio? Yes. Yeah, you just did. It's done. It's yeah, out there in the ozone. Okay. Yeah, I do wonder, yeah, just that whole – the whole um, higher education world, what's going to happen. I just saw a story, too, about, you know, colleges getting ready for students to ask for more financial aid because their parents are going to be out of work. I mean, it's just totally upended. Right, yeah. Well, yeah. and, and the students students are already upset because the universities won't give refunds, right? Even though even though they're stuck with online classes, they've given refunds for room and board, but not for tuition. And there's a big, you know, look if you're a senior, I mean, and you're you've gotten in someplace next year, wouldn't you be 
aren't you going to want to take a, a gap year just because you yes. don't want to be taking yeah. your first year? Yes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I Absolutely. Think, I totally. Think finances of, I think the finances of college education could finally implode. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and many would say that that time has come. All right, Joan O'Sara, you're the best. Bloomberg opinion columnist, noted author, columnist, I just business feel better writer. that we've talked about I him. do. I do, too. Host of The Shrink really Next do. Door. Uh, you really should check that out. Uh, it's going to be a movie soon. Will Ferrell, Paul Rudd, come on. Who's gonna, I know. Who's going to miss that? This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. You know, when we were talking earlier to Joe Nocera, we talked about the NCAA, mm-hmm. and obviously sports are a part of the college experience, but only a part, um, even though for many of us it's the most important part, but we won't get into that. But colleges, it's been front of mind uh, what colleges and universities are going to do and what they're doing even in the meantime when it comes to aid. Let's get into that and much more with Janet Lauren. She follows all things education for us. We love catching up with her. Got to start with Harvard, Janet. Uh, What a week for them, huh? Yes, what a week. Well, and if you look at um, the formula, the education department came up with a formula. 75% of it was based on, you know, the number of low-income students. The other share was based on the total number of students. Harvard is one of the largest universities, and uh, that's what they were. That's what they were allotted. And as you saw, the president criticized them, and they decided yesterday um, to say they're not going to accept the money. And all of their wealthy peers have has done the same. Um, Yale, Princeton, Stanford—they've all said the same thing that they're not going to take the money. Which I got to say, you know, we talked about this, Jason and I talked about this on air, and I said, well, you know, this is, they, they didn't do anything wrong. This is the government program allows them right, this money. Right. And man, people on Twitter came back and said, you know, don't give Harvard a pass by saying the government decided to send them the money. They need to return it. I mean, it's considering that it's Harvard <laughs> and well, they got... actually didn't, they actually didn't receive it. They okay. received, they were told this would be their allocation. Okay. But they could have. They could have. Yes, absolutely. The money was effectively on the way. So what does it tell us, I guess, Janet, more broadly about what schools more broadly need beyond the Harvards, beyond the Ivies and the Stanfords of the world? Because this is, I think it's fair to say, a time of crisis in higher education on many fronts. Yes, absolutely. And we don't know who's showing up in the fall. Right. We don't know if the freshman classes are going to be anywhere near where they need to be to give the schools enough revenue to operate. We don't know if the sophomore class is going to be much smaller. Mm-hmm. We do know that the school, the students are going to be a lot needier. So whatever financial aid budget they had previously, uh, it's going to be very likely a lot bigger, and the schools will try to accommodate that. But with fewer students, um, they canceled a lot of their summer programs that give them you know, a really nice cushion of revenue that they get every year, and that money is just gone because they can't have kids on campus. And they made, you know, there was a significant revenue generator having, you know, thousands of high school students coming to your campuses and filling the dorms, having weddings, having band camps, hosting high school graduations, you name it, that money's all gone now. Well, and I guess, Janet, one of the things I keep coming back to is this notion that most people would agree, especially people who have to write the checks 
to send their kids to college or, and the kids themselves going to college who have some financial stake in the game, that college is extraordinarily expensive. I, I don't think anybody Absolutely. would disagree with that. Absolutely. And yet on the other side, you have a lot of colleges and universities essentially saying without the revenue that we are counting on, just as you very well described, we will go broke. What's the disconnect there and how does it change? Well, uh, parents are paying a lot of money for intimate experiences with professors, small seminars, interactions with kids, you know, leadership in clubs. And if they're not getting that, why, why would they pay $70,000 or whatever they're paying? And, uh, you know, I, I think you're going to see a lot of kids not want to go in the fall. And uh, justifiably so, uh, why would anyone want to start college online when they're paying the full price? Right. Um, so the question is, we, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And the traditional date of acceptance is May 1st. A lot of colleges have moved that to June 1st and even July 1st. So we won't get a better sense for quite a bit. But we do know that you know, that, that revenue that's expected to come in is, is likely not going to be the same. I have to say, and it was something Jonas Sarah mentioned, but I really thought about this. I have a niece who's supposed to start college in the fall. Um, but this whole idea of a gap year. Like, why wouldn't you, and I know that's a hard thing to consider, but if you know it's going to be kind of a weird year and you just don't know what it's going to be like, certainly in the fall, and who knows what it means, you know, carrying over into the new year, you know, I do wonder if that will pick up some momentum, Janet. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be a formal gap year program. You could you could try to get a job or you could volunteer right. or you could spend time with your grandparents and, and uh, defer for a year and, you know, you're not really losing anything. It, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot of kids make that decision. Yeah, it's interesting. And we know you're going to continue uh, to follow this story, Janet, because I feel like the fallout to some extent is just beginning, you know, especially when you think about it. I mean, I've been talking to some folks who work at smaller colleges and universities, and they're just saying that, you know, the, this is an existential crisis in many ways. All right, Janet Lauren, always love catching up with her, uh, following all things education, higher education, endowments, and, you know, starting with the the Harvard story this week, which obviously caught a lot of headlines, and Carol, as you say, just blew up on Twitter. You know, it was oh it was in these, like, made-for-social-media sort of moments, obviously propelled by the president in his uh, daily press conference, and, and that was when it really caught fire. But, you know, Harvard is a sort of a an almost like third rail word in, yeah. in some cases, right? And something, you know, a university system that's got incredibly deep pockets yeah. and alumni who will make sure that the money continues flowing. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about how we talked with Mike that there's not great models for the economy right now because we've never seen these kind of statistics. And I yeah. feel like even for universities, uh, the financial crisis isn't the same, even though they saw cutbacks. This is just a whole different ballgame. It is. Uh, there was a funny story about how the most oft word used by CEOs these days, unprecedented. Makes sense. Almost An a unprecedented use. Almost a drinking game. Unprecedented. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This 
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just got about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. We've been bouncing around. Right now, we're just off our lows of the session. Still a little bit higher on those major equity averages, but definitely way off our highs of the session. Let's get into it with Jack McIntyre. He's Global Fixed Income Portfolio Manager of Brandywine Global Investment Management. He joins us on the phone from Philadelphia. Jack, nice to have you here. Um, talk to us a little bit about your world and investing right now. So, all right, being global, you know, that opens yeah. up. We can invest anywhere in the world. So, you know, we, um, we've got kind of a, a barbell a portfolio. So one of the things that we've been doing, the biggest change, is we've been increasing our uh, investment-grade corporate bond exposure. Uh, and the reason being is that, you know, we're not just, uh, we're, you know, we're not fighting the Fed, we're joining the Fed. You know, we're, we're taking what they're giving us. Um, you know, we're doing some very high-quality names. But, you know, we've raised some dollars. Um, but we still have some EM exposure, and, and that's been the, the part of the portfolio that certainly has underperformed. Um, I think from a valuation standpoint, it's, it's compelling, but again, there's a lot of uncertainty coming out of this, um, you know, and that's probably what the markets are kind of wrestling with now. It's not necessarily the, the flattening of the infection curves, but what's the world going to look like coming out of this? And um, this is where we kind of all have to sort of guess a little bit how we think it's going to play out. Well, Jack, that's a that's a really interesting point because, I mean, this is a to, – to go back to what you said, this is a global pandemic, and it has played out very unevenly around the world. And I think there is a lot of discussion out there as to what this actually looks like when maybe it hits in a more meaningful way, especially in some of those emerging markets. We had a guest on, I believe it was earlier this week, you know, talking about how there are very, very few cases in Africa, for instance, uh, right now. Maybe that will remain, uh, but you know we've seen a, a huge surge, I believe, in in India. So, mm. what does it take, and how do you do the work to to kind of synthesize the oh. medical side and the investment side? So, you know, it's, it's a great question, and you know, to be honest, I mean, there, there's no set answer. You know, what we have to do is kind of go back and, and look at you know everything from you know the demographics uh, in EF. You know, obviously. Well, not obviously, but a lot of countries have younger uh, you know, parts of the population. Well, you know, it looks like they're better positioned to come out of this. You know, some countries, they've kind of gone through their versions of uh, pandemics. Maybe their immune systems are in better shape. But, you know, no, it, I mean, it, it, and we obviously know, you know, they don't have the fiscal resources to do what right. we're doing in the developed world. We know the healthcare systems are underinvested, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I kind of use that because, hey, the market knows that. You know, and, and, and if the market knows that, isn't that already sort of discounted in price? I mean, I've yet to hear anybody say, you know, come out be very positive on EF. And, and I'm not saying I don't right. want the listeners to go out and pile into EF. Obviously, that there is risk doing that. It's part of our portfolio. It's not the entire portfolio. I think it's a, the way we're thinking about investing in this world is that, hey, if I'm going to put something that's going to do well in a, a risk-on environment, well, I need to add something that's going to do well in a risk-off environment because nobody's got the kind of conviction. Uh, I would just kind of bring out the point that, you know, we do maybe have some type of model, you know, looking at China. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they weren't transparent uh, in the beginning, but they're coming out of this. And, and I think it's the framework that might work in the U.S. is that as they bring their economy back online, people are going back to work, but they're slower to go into the leisure parts uh, of, of their Right. And, and their daily activities. So I think that's going to be the model that we're going to follow in the U.S. So what kind of, you know, so you're playing into sovereign debt, right, around the world. 
And I do wonder, we do know global central banks, man, they'll do what they need to to make sure they prop up their economies right now, right? So it's coming from all of the central bankers or the, um, the majority of them around the globe. What are the bets you want to make? What are the bets that you feel most confident? Because um, I look at your portfolio, which you guys have actually done pretty pretty well in the last um, one year or so, I think uh, up 9%, wow. uh, putting you in the 95th percentile. But it's not been an easy market, you know, longer term um, for you. So what's what's the bets that you feel that you can make with confidence right now? So, yeah, you're right. I mean, because it's, it's been a rough March. For us, I mean, we were positioned for the things that kind of played out in the fourth quarter, and the world quickly changed that way, changed uh, very, very quickly. So I do think, you know, the premise is interesting because I think you defined it very clearly. And so we're in a, a war, obviously, the things around the virus, and maybe the virus is going to get worse, but then we have the policymakers, the fiscal policymakers, the monetary policymakers. They, they've taken this mantra of we're going to do whatever it takes. So this is Draghi's model in 2012, they've all adopted it. So they're going to get tested. So this is why uh, we're going to continue to see different uh, amounts of fiscal stimulus, different monetary policy. So, you know, that's going to create some stability. And then ultimately, you know, we're going to have to see some progress on the medical front. So, you know, I'm not sure, to be honest, it's a high conviction type world right now. We are positioned, but what we're also doing is extending our time horizon because there isn't clarity what's going to happen a month, a quarter from now. But, you know, if a year from now, two years, if you have that ability to have that sort of time frame, uh, I can come up with a more constructive sort of view because I think this stimulus could actually hit at a time that maybe we're starting to see uh, some improvement, you know, around the virus, around the uptick in economic activity. And that could set a decent backdrop for risk assets. But, again, that's getting the timing right is the, the hard part. Big question, and we only have about 30 seconds for you to answer it, Jack, but oil, I mean, that obviously has mm. had partially to do with the pandemic, but largely outside of it. How does that figure into your thesis here? So you're right. I think it's, it's mostly, I'd say, 80% driven by demand side, driven by, you know, the, the pandemic. There's a supply issue. There's a leverage. The hedge fund guys, the, uh, the, the CTA, commodity trading advisors, they're still really long oil contracts. So, you know, they're they can't take this much pain. So they're unwinding these things. So yeah, it, it's, um, it's just reflective of a, a weak demand, which mm -hmm. reflects the slowdown in global growth. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Jack McIntyre. He is the, I want to make sure I get your title right, Global Fixed Income Portfolio Manager for Brandywine Global Investment Management, joining us on the phone from Philadelphia. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.